I had the privilege, obviously, this morning of participating in baptism with Grant Stansel, and we do celebrate the work that God has done to bring him to this point. Uh, I've had individuals at times ask if, there, if an individual is ever too young to be baptized, and I will say that the answer to that can be yes and it can be no, depending on where we're at. Uh, what really matters is, first of all, has the individual made a decision to follow Jesus Christ? And then do they understand what baptism is truly about? And when I had Grant come and share with me, we, we kind of talked about what baptism was. He understood that baptism is, first of all, it is a testimony to the work that God has already done by saving him when he surrendered his life to Christ. It's as if we are symbolically going through the experience of salvation all over again. The salvation has already come. The moment he surrendered his life to Jesus Christ, he was a child of God without a shadow of a doubt. But what we do through this is we give everybody else a glimpse of it. It's as if we're going into the water dirty with sin, and when we come out, we are all of a sudden made clean and whole. And that's exactly what happened in the act of salvation. The water that we use back here is just normal, ordinary water, but it symbolizes something that is far more significant. So uh, we do celebrate the work that has been done there and the fact that Grant was able to explain exactly what baptism was to me uh, tells me regardless, uh, uh, did you say he's nine? Is that what you said? At the age of nine, that's a, a great time for an individual to be baptized. Actually, any time an individual, regardless of their age, when they reach that point where they recognize what God has done for them and they have surrendered their lives to him, baptism is a wonderful thing. So I uh, just want to celebrate that again for a moment. I also wanted to take a moment and just give an update on our Haiti trip. As many of you know, actually I don't know if everyone does know because the media has been for the most part silent on a lot of the things that are going on in Haiti right now. Uh, but the State Department has removed all of the government employees from the United States except for some essential ones. And um, unfortunately, they also are telling people that they should not travel to Haiti at this point. Uh, the Wesleyan Church has actually removed all of our full-time missionaries. Uh, the last group of them were leaving yesterday, which means we no longer have a missionary presence in Haiti. And unfortunately, uh, that will not change in the immediate future. Actually, the Wesleyan Church has asked that no one travel there until at least mid-March at, at a minimum. Our trip dates were March the 8th through the 16th. Now, this is the second time we've had to do this, but we will not be traveling to Haiti on March the 8th as we had previously planned. Um, couple things that you might want to know about that is some of you have given specifically for that mission trip and any money that was raised for that trip that uh, we're working on getting money back on airline tickets and hopefully we can do that that would help us but we will continue to use that for short-term mission stuff whatever was given we will try to make sure that that still goes to short-term mission stuff I have already been contacted by the director of the Costa Rican uh, Wesleyan Mission Work, and they have asked if we would come and uh, build a church down there. And it is a possibility that we may be doing that, but we're probably looking at the summertime uh, just so we can plan instead of just throwing something together for the sake of doing something. Now, 
In addition to that, next Sunday we have a fundraiser that is intended for uh, Haiti. Uh, it was supposed to be a, it, well, it is a dinner and a baked good auction. We are still going to do that. And I'm going to, I know that I've heard some people say, well, maybe you could do this to support the trip to Costa Rica. Actually, our plan with this was to support Haiti. And what we'd like to do is any money that comes in next Sunday evening as a part of that, we would like to be able to send to the missionaries that will be going back to Haiti, and they will then be able to put it in the hands of people who will not be abusing the generosity of others, but that will enable them to begin to pick up the pieces and move forward. So we will still have that dinner and baked good auction next Sunday night, but the focus will be on sending the money to the missionaries and allowing them to use that where they recognize the need is most present at the time. Does everybody understand what we're doing with that then? I hate having to cancel a trip. In fact, it's ironic because I've never had to cancel a mission trip, especially because of violence in the region. And this is the second time this year we've had to do that with Haiti. So as much as I hate doing that, uh, we will do whatever the Lord wants us to do, and we're not going to put our people in harm's way in the process and doing it. So if you would, I will ask that you would continue to pray for the people of Haiti. One of the hardest parts about this is the missionaries. Um, it's easy for us because it's a little bit inconvenient, but that's all that it is. For them, they've been living in Haiti, and a lot of the people that they're leaving behind are hurting, and it's very difficult for them to leave the people that they love behind. Uh, so I encourage you to be in prayer, not only for the people of Haiti, but even those missionaries who have been serving in a full-time capacity. Uh, it is not a pleasant place to be right now, but um, God can use even the brokenness in Haiti today for something good. And we believe that, that he will do that, uh, but we need God's people praying specifically for that. And before I get into the message, I would like to stop and have us just pray specifically for the people of Haiti. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we've had to connect with the people there. Uh, we recognize that there are a lot of really good people there. There are a lot of people there who really love you, and there are a lot of people there who really need you. And in the midst of this turmoil, this crisis that's taking place, I pray that you would find a way to turn this into something incredible. I pray that the people would cry out to you and they would find your faithfulness there. I pray that you would provide for their every need and I pray that as you do so, that your name would be lifted up and even those who perhaps have wanted nothing to do with you would begin to recognize that there is a God who sits on the throne and is able to reach into their lives right now. I pray that you would use this situation for your good. I pray for the individuals who are there. I do pray for those missionaries who today are hurting because they are not where they have been, because the people that they love are not with them, and they know that many of them today are still suffering with the effects of this crisis. And I pray that in the midst of all of this, Lord, that you would uh, make the church stronger than it's ever been in Haiti. Uh, bind us together here in prayer for the people of Haiti. And more than anything, again, we seek your sense of revival among the people there. And may it even spread beyond that particular nation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, none of that has anything to do with my message, but the song that Joel sang does fit perfectly with my message. 
Uh, it is a blessing to be able to share with you, and as many of you know, I've been uh, doing a sermon series on the DNA of the church. The focus has been on identifying many of the core beliefs and characteristics that ought to be a part of every believer. Last year, I taught on the beautiful bridge that we are called to be, serving as a bridge to connect the world with Jesus Christ. Remember that this is a call of God that is to all Christians, not just to the missionary or to the preacher, but to all Christians, and we are all expected to obediently respond to that call. I gave you the passage from Matthew 28, which is referred to as the Great Commission last Sunday. It is not a request. It is not a question. It is not a suggestion. It is a command. Go, therefore, into all the world, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So as a part of that sermon, I introduced you to another type of bridge. It was just in passing, but I did. You see, there's actually a bridge in Azusa, California, that is known as the Bridge to Nowhere. That's because more than 80 years ago, a flood took place washing out the road on the eastern side of this newly built bridge. Although they planned to rebuild that road, it simply never happened which means that there is a road leading up to this bridge and you can go across the bridge, but there's nothing on the other side. Upon doing some other research on this particular bridge, I discovered that there are several other bridges that are referred to as bridges to nowhere around the world. They each have their own story, some that were started and they simply were never completed, Others that deterioration or crime caused the other side to become barren. But they all have one thing in common. Reaching the other side isn't really all that it's cracked up to be. Years ago, I read a book that was entitled, Without a Vision, The People Will Perish. This title is derived from Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18, which says, where there is no vision, the people perish, but he, keeps, he that keeps the law is happy. Well, I have this fear regarding the church. It would seem that many of us operate our faith based on obligation and a need for obedience. We want to live up to a certain standard so that others will think highly of us. We do things because we think it will help us in the short term. Yet we're not even consider, we do not even consider the long-term end game. Well, I hope you all understand that living for Christ will make you better in this life. In the short term, you'll usually be better off if you do things God's way. But you need to know that there is an end game. What is the purpose of our faith? What is it that awaits us at the end? How will we define victory when this whole race is finished? Will you reach the other side of the bridge and have something worth waiting for? Or is it just another bridge to nowhere? Today's passage that I had Jerry read earlier addresses this question as it talks about finishing the race. But it also gives us somewhat of a recipe to make sure that we do more than just compete in the race, 
but we receive the crown of victory at the end of the race. It's found in 2 Timothy 4, verse 7 and 8, and I'd like to read it once more with you. It says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. I played in a softball tournament yesterday in Anderson, and it was a lot of fun. And I am going to tell you, I, I wrote my sermon out before the tournament took place, and my sermon is incorrect. I just, okay, call, call me a person of little faith, but I just assumed that we would not win the tournament. And we won the tournament, which was fantastic. We had a great time. Um, I had in here that uh, I said we played hard and we were at least respectable, but we, end, we lost in the end. We did not lose in the end. I remember a coach years ago who told us that what's important is having fun. Then he added, of course, it's a lot more fun when you win than when you lose. We may laugh at what he said, but the truth is it is a lot more fun to win. I like to win, or at least to know that I've got a chance to win when I go out to play. Our passage today says that I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And although there are many factors that go into winning or losing, finishing and keeping, the way we prepare plays a significant role in how we finish. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the apostle Paul addresses this and he says, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. He talks about disciplining his body. That's called preparation. He's not just hoping that everything works out. He's not making assumptions about what he might face in the game. He is simply preparing for battle. I remember when we lived in Colorado Springs, we would often see Olympic athletes that would be out training, running all year round, working hard. It's the home of the Olympic training, U.S. Olympic Training Center. So almost every day you would see these guys out pushing their bodies as hard as they possibly could. I mean, you knew that they were serious about their sport. I remember stopping one of them one day and I was talking with him about what he was doing, and I asked what event he was training for. I mean, this guy was, he was buff. He was strong. You could see by looking at him, he was working hard. I'm expecting him to say weightlifting or some unbelievable sport that normal people like you and I would not naturally be able to do. He looked at me, he said, I'm doing archery. I admit, I was a little bit disappointed to hear that he was doing archery. But what I got from that was that he wasn't taking anything for granted. If he was going to compete, he was going to be ready. 
And the same must be true for you and me. According to this passage, we begin with self-control. Self-control is listed as one of the fruits of the spirits in Galatians chapter 5, and it should affect every area of our lives. One of the problems that many of us have is we are selective in our self-control. It's like an exercise that the youth group is currently doing. They've been challenged to give up at least one thing over the next 40 days as an act of fasting. Our first thought with, with fasting is food, but the reality is they've been encouraged to, and fasting goes beyond, they've been encouraged to think beyond food. Some chose to give up watching television. Some chose to give up complaining. By the way, they should give that one up all year round, not just for those 40 days. Or certain types of food, or maybe something like chocolate or caffeine, those kinds of things. Lee shared that one of the kids who doesn't like chocolate decided to fast from chocolate. (laughs) Duh, he wasn't going to eat chocolate anyways. That's called selective self-control. But we can't be selective in our self-control. If you want to be the man or woman of God that you have been created to be, if you want to reach the finish line, then you must be self-controlled, especially in the things that we desire most. You want that extra piece of cake? Show self-control by walking away from the table. You want that extramarital relationship? Show self-control by simply saying no. You want that high-priced item that would be really nice for you to have and everybody else will admire you for it? Show self-control and be content with what you have already received. See, again, it's easy to talk about self-control when we're talking about things that we don't want. But we're talking about self-control even about the things that we desire. Self-control comes in many shapes, but it is a non-negotiable for a child of God. Well, beyond preparation, we also need to be all in. We need to be fully committed in it to win it. Paul knew why he was doing what he was doing. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 14, he says, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Notice that he's not talking about his role as a minister or an evangelist, but simply as one who is seeking heaven. Why does this matter? It matters because this is what all of us must do, not just the missionary, not just the pastor. We must press on. We must stay faithful to the task. And of course, this also leads to the next issue. These two kind of grow together. We must stay the course. There are a lot of different reasons why people give up on their faith. Galatians 5, 7 says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? You were running a good race. Who cut in on you? Who stopped you from running the way you've been running? Well, take a moment and remember back to that moment when you were passionately in love with Jesus Christ. Are you still that way? I was reading recently in the book of Revelation. I've read it many times before, but I was reading about the church at Ephesus 
There are seven letters to seven churches that are given, and it's Jesus who is addressing these letters to the churches. And as he does so, for the most part, he begins with a greeting, sort of an encouragement, a a word of confirmation. And then he says, yet nevertheless, you have this issue in play. And it would seem that every one of those churches needed some kind of correction. The problem within the church at Ephesus is they have forsaken their first love. And he challenges them to consider the height from which they have fallen. What he's saying is, remember back to that time where you were passionately in love with God above everything else. When he was the most important thing to you, that was what you woke up thinking about. How can I serve the Lord? How can I please him? celebrating what God has done in you. Where did that passion go? Where did that love go? The question for them would be, who has cut in on you? You were running such a good race. It never identifies exactly what led them to their complacency. But there are some typical possibilities. Perhaps life just got too easy for them. They didn't have to work for their faith anymore. It no longer required a sacrifice. You would think that the fact that it was easier, that more people would seek after God, but it's not actually true. You see, for their early church, for them to seek after God, it cost them something. So if they went after God, they had to be all in. There was no half-hearted Christianity. If you were a Christian, you lived like you were a Christian. I would suggest today that in America, it's probably become so easy to take the name Christ that it, it very rarely actually means something to the way we live. And that's a great concern for the nation and for the church. Most politicians will tell you, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Does it actually play out in their lives? I'm not talking about Republicans or Democrats. I'm talking about every. This is not just one group of people. For the New Testament church, if they were to choose Christ, it cost them something. And there was no half-hearted pursuit of Christ. Perhaps for some of you, it wasn't that it became too easy. Perhaps you had someone else who let you down. They became, the individual becomes disillusioned by the failures of another. Perhaps they just got distracted by other things. Perhaps they just became overwhelmed by life in general. Whatever it was, something had cut in on them. And they no longer pursued their first love. I've been talking about them. It's easier to talk about them. Now I ask you, what is it that has caused you to lose that first love? What is it that has caused you to no longer pursue Christ with that excitement and that fervor that dominated your life as a new believer? I'm going to tell you that just as the church at Ephesus needed to be reminded, that same love is still available to you. Maybe it's time for us to renew the passion that once burned bright within us. Maybe it's time for us to pray the words that David prayed. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation and renew a steadfast spirit in me.
It will not happen unless we choose to make it happen. I want to challenge you to never become content in your walk with Christ. In our contentment, we are settling for less than God's best. Listen to the words of Acts 20, verse 24, which says, But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. What he is saying is the most important thing that I can do is to continue to walk in and testify to the grace of God which I have received. That should be the sentiment of each of us. No compromise when it comes to our walk with him. The reason is simple. We have a crown that is absolutely worth fighting for. Remember back to our original passage this morning. It said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. The crown that we seek is an eternal, beautiful crown. We don't do what we do just for the sake of bettering our life today, although we recognize that walking in a Christian manner will impact us here. God will bless and he will provide, but we do not live for what he provides here. We live for what he will provide in eternity. The day will come when all of humanity is brought before the Lord Jesus Christ. And while no man knows the day nor the hour, we can know that when that time comes, we should have nothing to fear. Instead, if we stand before Jesus Christ, having been cleansed by his blood, then our reward will be great. There are promises all throughout the scripture that point to the fact that this is not a day that those who are right with God need to fear, but we ought to look forward to it with a sense of anticipation. For those who have been redeemed, the reward is great. Our reward is heaven. Well done, good and faithful servants. That's the the phrase that all of us ought to long to hear. For those who have not been redeemed, though, it is a day that they ought to fear because the punishment truly is hell. My question for you is, what will your finish line look like? Will it be well done, good and faithful servant, or will it be away from me for I never knew you? In Philippians 3, 7 and 8, Paul says, but whatever things were gained to me, Those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I might gain Christ. In other words, I don't play for the same things that I used to play for. It's not about me. It's not about getting what I want. In fact, I now count those things as loss, those things that used to define whether I was successful, they don't really matter so much anymore, especially since I know that they cannot compare to what I receive from Christ, his gift, his reward, 
is far greater than anything I could earn here anyways. This is a principle that we came across often as we were doing addiction recovery ministry. Of course, everyone wants to see people set free from addiction. Everyone wants to see individuals fleeing even the appearance of evil. But the problem for many is that not is is that for many of these individuals they they do this back and forth thing with addiction. What ends up happening is the individual says, "Okay, I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to pick one addiction, just because it's easy to pick. Uh, we're going to say alcohol. Uh, it's individuals an alcoholic, and they know that it's destroying their lives. And they say, you know what? I'm not going to drink anymore. I- I'm done with that." So I'm going to stay away from it. We all would celebrate the fact that they would make that decision, that they would begin that process of moving away from the addiction. And the truth is, it is a great thing. Uh, Alcohol is something that has destroyed many, many lives, not only through drinking and driving, but how many marriages have been ruined because of the use of alcohol. I think it's a fantastic thing for an individual to reach that point. But here's the problem. For many of them, their goal becomes, I will not do this thing anymore. I'm going to stay away from it. And what they do is their pursuit is much more about fleeing, getting away, rather than running towards something else. And what happens is a moment of crisis comes up. Something happened that they didn't like at work. Their wife or their husband said something that was insensitive, and they go back to the alcohol that has enslaved them before. And what happens is you have this back and forth, back and forth, where for a while they do well, and then they don't. And it's back and forth over and over again. Here's the problem. If we had something to genuinely pursue, we wouldn't have to go back to that thing anymore. I'm going to tell you that we have something that we ought to be pursuing And it is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only one who can genuinely set us free where we will never go back to it again. Part of the problem is, let's say we get free of our alcohol or whatever else it is. If we don't have Jesus Christ, our life is still incomplete. Jesus Christ is the only one who can truly give us the victory. He's the only one who can truly fulfill us. The last thing that we see in our original passage is a reference to a crowd of others. Look at it with me again. It says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. This promise of victory and freedom goes beyond the Apostle Paul. He says that he knows he will receive the reward. He's confident of that. But that reward is not just intended for him. Instead, it is intended for anyone who is seeking Christ and his return. Let me tell you a story about an individual's name is Robert Todd Lincoln. Some of us will at least recognize a little bit of his story, but honestly, I had never heard it until this week. He was the son of Abraham Lincoln. He seemed to have a life of close calls. For starters, Robert 
was the only one of four brothers to survive beyond his teenage years. Then when Robert was about 20, he fell between a moving train and the station platform. A fast-thinking stranger seized Robert by the coat collar and pulled him back to the platform, saving his life. Robert quickly recognized the Good Samaritan as the famous actor Edwin T. Booth. If that name sounds familiar, it's because Edwin's infamous brother, John Wilkes Booth, would later assassinate Robert Lincoln's father one year later. He was not at the Ford Theater when his father was shot, but was present at his bedside when he died. Later, Robert carved out his own political career and was rewarded with the Secretary of War post under President James Garfield. In 1881, only four months into his new position, Garfield invited Robert to join him on a trip to New Jersey. Before either man could step onto the train, Garfield was gunned down. A few years later, Robert Lincoln was in Buffalo, New York by invitation of President William McKinley. While at a speaking engagement, McKinley was shot twice by an assassin. Robert did not see the shooting, but was in the room and heard the gunshots. President McKinley died eight days later from his wounds. Knowing he seemed to be bad luck for his presidential pals... Robert turned down just about every presidential invitation that would come his way beyond. Actually, if I was the president, I wouldn't have invited him to be there. <laughs> he did make one exception, and he attended the dedication of the Lincoln Memorial in 1922. President Warren G. Harding and former President William H Howard Taft both survived the occasion. Few people have witnessed so many history-making events, but your entire walk with Christ ought to be one of these history-making events. The question is, what role will you play? In, in this story of, of Robert Lincoln, he was a spectator, and honestly, I don't think I would have wanted to be the spectator in that story. I wonder if there are many within the church who are more like spectators when it talks in regard to this spiritual event that is taking place. We're sitting back and we're watching God move and we're watching him move in other people's lives and we think, wow, this is so wonderful, man, that's fantastic. I sure wish I had a story like that. I want you to know today that God desires to work in you. He doesn't want you to be just a spectator, but he wants you to be a participant. He wants you to get involved so that when you reach the finish line, you're not standing on the sidelines cheering for others as they cross the line, but rather you get to be the one who's crossing the line. God has called us into this great race and there is a great reward that awaits us. There is a reason for us to be excited looking forward to that day. But until that day comes, we must run with perseverance that is race, that, the race that is marked out before us. It is vital that we give everything we have to it. I want to challenge you in this way, and then we'll wrap up. Maybe today, you're not running as hard as you used to run. 
Maybe today you've lost the passion and the hunger that once burned in you. I want to challenge you today to once again consider what you're running for. There is a great reward that awaits us. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be in second place. I'm really glad we won that tournament yesterday. It feels good to go out on top, but that is absolutely nothing compared to going out on top when I reach the end of this race. I want to know that I've given all that I have to this race and that I can win. I want you to know the same thing. Maybe for you it's time to start doing some things you haven't done. Maybe it's time for you to start doing some of the things like the youth are doing. Giving up something else that maybe takes your time away from God. Giving up something that doesn't belong in your life to begin with. Maybe it's time for you to take on some new things that you need to start doing. The point is, you're not going to reach the finish line if you're just haphazardly out for a stroll. There's a difference with someone who's out for a stroll and one who is preparing to reach the finish line. We must be intentional. We must go. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, as we come before you, Lord, we are so grateful that you have reached into our lives and offered us salvation. Thank you for the opportunity this morning just to celebrate with Grant and the salvation that he has received. But there are many in this room who have received that gift of salvation. And my prayer for each one is that we would not be satisfied with just saying, yeah, we're in the race now, but help us to run in such a way that we can win the race. But I pray that your Holy Spirit would fill us and that you would work in us to change who we are. And then I pray that we would be diligent, that we would be disciplined to continue to press on even when other people don't measure up, even when there are distractions that go on in our lives, even when it seems like there are all these different reasons not to pursue you. Remind us constantly that we have a prize that we are running for. But we look forward to the day that you return. We don't know when it's going to be, but we believe it's going to be a great day. And that those who are still here, that we will be called up and we will meet you in the air. And it will be a great moment of celebration and rejoicing. And we will come before your throne and we will be judged. And it will be a beautiful thing hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. I pray that all of us would be ready for that day. If it's a hundred years from now, make us ready. If it's today, make us ready. Lord, help us to be disciplined, to pursue you, and to truly run this race well. May you be honored in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It is a blessing to have each of you with us and to be able to celebrate God's goodness and faithfulness. And I look forward to seeing what God does in you and me and all of us. I really believe God's going to do great things But it won't happen if we're just out for the leisurely stroll. It's going to happen because we are all in. We are pressing on to take hold of the prize to which God has called us heavenward. Thank you for being with us this morning. Go in peace.